0: Well, good morning, New Life East. How are we doing? Yep, for those of you that are talking to me, that's so great. The rest of you are talking to somebody else, which is totally fine. They probably have something better to say than I do anyways. Good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Rory. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life East. And if you are a guest with us, we are especially glad that you've joined us. We know that it's the new year. This is the time that people sort of start coming back to church or show up to church for the very first time. So if you're a guest, we'd love to meet you and say hi to you in Connect Central after this service. Today, we start a brand new series of talks. This is going to take us all the way up close into Easter as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you grew up in church, the Sermon on the Mount is a fairly well-known sort of body of Scripture. It's one of the places that we have like Jesus' teachings sort of just culminated together and what you should know is that throughout history there were often messiah characters or world leaders who would show up and claim to be the rescuers of humanity and they would have a lot to say but very rarely is there a space where all of it is like documented in one place and if you want to know what like Jesus thought about the world if you want to know what Jesus thinks about you if you want to know what Jesus thinks about how to be like married if you want to know what Jesus thinks about how to live well and die well. It's all in this one spot. So if you find yourself being like, I don't really, this Jesus guy, he's fascinating. I've been going to church for a while. I don't really know what he thinks about all these things. Man, the Sermon on the Mount is the place that we're going to spend our time in for the next so many months. And you are going to figure out exactly what it is that Jesus thinks about all these things. But the Sermon on the Mount can be quite complicated because it is just straightforward teaching, but nothing that Jesus ever does is all that straightforward There's always sort of caveats and challenges that he hooks in there. And for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount well, we actually have to understand the very first part of it well. It's called the Beatitudes, which is also a section of Scripture scripture many of you are probably familiar with. But what I'm going to propose today is that what you know about it is all wrong. Doesn't mean I'm all right. Right but I'm gonna challenge some things that we believe about the Beatitudes. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me. Matthew chapter five is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. And it says this, starting in verse one. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. Everyone say sat down. Any good rabbi in Jesus's day as he was teaching would find a stool or a significant place to sit. He would wrap his prayer shawl around him and begin to teach his students. It says that his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. There's a whole nother sermon in here about what it means for Jesus to be our teacher, and we don't have time for it. So we're going to keep going. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. For righteousness. Some of you are like, why is he saying blessed and not blessed? Because it's just what we feel like we should say. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs. Is the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends it by saying, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Let's pray. Jesus, we are a thankful people this morning, a joyous people. We're thankful that somehow throughout human history, we have the ability to pick up a document and read your words. And that somehow, in the strangest of ways, those words have implications for us right now. They're not simply quotes from history, but they are quotes about reality, about a new kind of reality a new kind of reality that you're inviting us into. So God, as we open up these scriptures today, we ask that you would bless our ears. Would you open them? We ask that you would open our eyes to see things that we have not seen before. We ask that you would create new ways of thinking in our brains. That we would somehow walk out of here this morning with a clearer picture of who you are and a clearer picture of how it is that you see the world. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Jesus has been traveling around at this point. He's making his mark on the world. He is the first band that ever made it big out of Jerusalem. People are following, flocking to him. Men, women, children, sick, healthy. Everyone is showing up, listening to what it is that this rabbi, this once carpenter, now has to say about the world. And Jesus is In this moment, standing on the side of a cliff, looks at this crowd of people, and he begins his sermon with one word. You heard me just a moment ago say it. One word. It's what? Blessed. My wife and I, we both grew up in the Midwest. We're both from Illinois originally. And I can remember, is there an Illinois person in the room? Did someone? Yeah, look at that. Hey, two, three people. Look at that. Praise God. The good ones among us. That's not true. Um... They're just here. We moved from Illinois to Texas when we first got married. And, um, you know, there's a couple of things that you just learn when you find yourself living in the state of Texas. If you were here a few months ago, you heard Pastor Colin preach, and he talked about his affinity for Texas. Yeah, He loves it. You should go back and listen to that sermon if you'd like to hear all of his thoughts. But I'll share my thoughts this morning. There's a barbecue shop on every corner. Thank God. You pull off onto a street and all of a sudden, the atmosphere changed, the smoke in the air, the smell in the air. It smells like an animal with skin has been cooking for a long time. And your stomach opens up and you are hungry. Texas, man, they are serious about their barbecue. They're also serious about their trucks. Man, everybody's got a truck. They don't just have like a plane truck. They don't have like a Ford Ranger. They're driving in like a lifted truck. And you know what you learn pretty quick about these trucks? When you're driving next to them on the highway, they don't even care if you're there. As far as they can tell, you are just in their way. You're driving in a 2004 Silver Corolla, just guessing here, not life experience. And they have no care about your presence on the road. Everyone's rolling around in a truck eating their barbecue to go. They're also Texans are also really serious about this restaurant called Whataburger. Some of you have heard of it and let me tell you that place is not good. <laughs> and if you think it is, I'm really sorry that your taste buds don't work. They love this place, man. They told when I moved there, I remember they, man, you got to go to Waterburger. You got to go to Waterburger. I went to Waterburger and I was like, "Oh, it's like Dairy Queen but with better PR." Like I I get it. They love this place. You know what else they do in Texas quite frequently? They do it in the South too, just in general. They have this phrase that they throw around, this little three-word phrase. Some of you have heard it. Some of you use it, and you've used it on me before, and it's okay. They say the words, bless your heart. And the first time someone said it to me, I thought, wow, how sweet. You really care about me. Bless your heart. People would say it to me quite frequently now that I think about it. And I thought it was a term of empathy, of endearment, of love. And my friends, it is not a term of empathy, endearment, or love. It is in fact an insult that conveys quite a bit of condescension in it. Its meaning can range all the way from how stupid are you really, to I know your mother did not raise you this way, to... Words that I cannot say in church and go home and feel good about. They would say it all the time. They just kind of throw it around. It's not people in the South, though, just saying, like, bless your heart. In church, quite frequently, I hear people say all the time, I am so blessed. Or they are so blessed. It's become sort of cultural. We just sort of throw the word around we're pretty flipping with it you you see that guy who is making money hand over fist he's doing well in his career he's getting every bonus every raise that he's can he's he's got the the white house with the black shutters and the picket fence and he's bought a boat and an rv because someone needs a boat and an rv and they've got cars oh they just bought a tesla they're doing really well and we look at them and we say man he is blessed or we see the woman who's, who's got, she's just gotten married and their life looks perfect because Instagram helps make that happen. And, and, and we look at them and we go, man, he, she's got a, a really handsome husband and maybe more handsome than mine. And man, she, she's really excited. She's happy. Her kids are so well behaved. Man, they are so blessed. Or, or we look at that person who's at church, they're on stage even, maybe they're like leading worship up here and you see them and you think, man, they're so talented, look at all the gifts and things that they have, look at how God is blessing them. Or, or we have that moment, maybe you had this a couple of weeks ago, it's Christmas morning, you're sitting on your couch, you've got a, a warm robe on, an even warmer cup of coffee, And you've posted a photo of it, because how could we not? And you look at your kids opening their presents. You're doing that thing that moms do where they like half smile. And you think to yourself, oh, I'm just so blessed. We do this all the time. We throw it around. Can I tell you guys something? Jesus is not using the word blessed in these terms. Jesus is not thinking about your bank account when he makes this Statement: Jesus is not thinking about the quality of your family and how happy everyone looks in the family photos. Jesus is not thinking about the white house with the black shutters and the white picket fence and the RV and the boat. That's not the way that Jesus is using this word. The way that Jesus is using this word is the way in which we sort of see it used most frequently in the scriptures, which is this, to be blessed the way that Jesus uses it is to be experiencing the favor of God, to experience the favor of God. Now, what's interesting is they had an understanding in Jesus' day of who it was that experienced the favor of God. You know who it was? was the ritually pure, the ceremonially clean, the people who, who went to temple every time that they could, those who paid the temple tax, those who made all the proper sacrifices, those who sort of got everything right they were blessed those who had power and wealth and prosperity those people were blessed the people who had status the people who were teachers the people who were leaders those people were blessed so one might think that what Jesus is simply doing is using the term in the exact same way but we know that he's not he's not looking out at a crowd of wealthy people he's looking at a massive crowd of people who have been following him for a long Time. So, whatever blessing it is that Jesus is handing out in this moment is not a blessing that has been earned by anyone. It's not a blessing that has been achieved. It's not a blessing that people have sort of reoriented their lives and now they're receiving the blessing. Now, here's what's interesting that's how most of us have been taught the Beatitudes is that when we look at this list of things poor in spirit, meek, merciful, striving for the good things in life, pure in heart, peacemakers. What we've been taught often is that you are supposed to look at this list and go, okay, I'm gonna structure my life so that I become all of these things. I ought to become more poor in spirit. And when someone goes, what does that mean? You go, I have no idea, but I'm gonna try and become it. You say, I should become more meek. The way in America we've sort of turned that is like, oh, I should be more humble. I should make myself low and unimpressive. I should try to be a peacemaker. I should try to step into the middle of the warring parties of the world and fix things. I ought to try to become a lot of things. The problem is if we read the Beatitudes that way, what we inherently do is make them a new set of commandments. They become a new version of the law. They become a new thing that we can set our lives up to try and strive for. Okay, I'm gonna try to make myself more meek. The problem is if we turn the Beatitudes into that, there are two outcomes. At best, you become a Pharisee. At worst, you become a failure. At best, you become a Pharisee. You start walking around going, hey, does everyone see how meek I'm being? You guys see how meek I'm being? While everyone else is looking at you going, no, you're just a pushover. Do you see how much I'm mourning? Do you see I'm crying in church? Worship's happening. I'm in tears. And everyone's like, no, you're just a little emotionally unstable. Do you, see how, do you see how righteous I'm trying to be? Do you see how much I'm hungering and thirsting after righteousness? People could just, know, no, no, you're just, you're just self-righteous. So at best, we become Pharisees. We, we can try to strive after all these things. We don't ever hit the mark. So at worst, we become failures. We find ourselves with another set of standards that we cannot ourselves, as followers of Jesus, live up to. So if that's not what Jesus is getting at. If this is not a new set of rules or a new standard for you to live up to. Now, clarification, I'm not saying it's bad to be meek. I'm not saying it's bad to be a peacemaker. But if that's not really what Jesus is getting at, then the logical question is, well, what is he getting at? Thank you so much for asking, I'm glad you did. A question that we have to ask of the text is really important. Maybe the most important question that you could ask as you read the Beatitudes is simply this. Who was Jesus talking to? Who was Jesus talking to? Now, some of you have an answer that exists in your mind. and I'm going to tell you how it's wrong here in just a second. Matthew chapter 4. Let's go back a few verses. Verse 23. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Jesus is moving around. He's traveling, he's teaching, but he's also doing what? He's healing the people who are the most sick, whose bodies are breaking. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Who was Jesus talking to? There's a couple of things that we can recognize. One, there's a large Jewish population that has followed behind him. At this point, he's called four of his disciples to be his disciples. So he's got those boys with him. He's got this primarily Jewish religious group that's with him. But Matthew throws in this this statement. He says, there's a large group of people following from the Decapolis. The Decapolis is a group of 10 cities that was settled by Alexander the Great which is code to know that these are not deeply religious Jewish people. These are Gentiles. These are people that in the Jewish worldview are as far and as distant from God as one could be. They're not ritually pure. They're not ceremonially clean. So you have this religious audience. You have this hyper non-religious audience, those with no belief systems at all. But Matthew also says that they're sick people, who are following Jesus people whose bodies don't work people who have been walking with diseases for many years looking for healing of some sort some sort of freedom to come out of it there are people who are paralyzed so there's people there whose family members are literally carrying them from point A to point B every time Jesus makes a move he doesn't just say that there's medically unhealthy people there's also spiritually unhealthy people he says there's those who are oppressed By demons, those who have been experiencing demonic activity in their lives. Now, thinking about this crowd, there's a religious group, there's a non religious group, and then there's all these people who are sick, dying, paralyzed, spiritually oppressed. Where do those kinds of people live in Roman society? They don't live in nice homes, they don't live in great neighborhoods. They live on the fringes of society, the margins of the community. They're outcasts. They are the exact people that the pe- the leaders of Jesus' day would look at and say, if anyone is blessed, it's not you. If anyone's doing well in life, it's not you. If anyone, if anyone has found favor with God, well, it's not you. You sick people, you paralyzed people, you wounded people. People, those of you on the fringes of society, this, my friends, is the crowd that Jesus is talking to. When we then get back into it and it says Jesus saw these crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. Now, most of us, when we hear the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we believe that Jesus is talking just to his closest friends. Do you know how many disciples exist at this point? I've told you already. Four. Four. The 12 disciples do not exist now. So what we can interpret from this passage, the best of our understanding is the way that Matthew uses the word disciple is the most literal way that one could use it at the time, which is not a student of Jesus, a student of the way of Jesus. It is someone who is quite literally walking behind a rabbi. They believe, commentators believe, that there are hundreds, if not thousands of people in this crowd and none of them are those 12 disciples that we get to know and love so well through the stories. Jesus is announcing blessing, not over the people who are going to die for him one day, although four of them are there. He is announcing blessings over the very group of people that no one would dare at the time call blessed. Blessed. What I mean by all of this is to simply say this, for us to understand the Beatitudes, it's this. The Beatitudes are not an announcement of how to secure your spot in the kingdom of God. It's not an announcement that if you act more meek, you'll be good with Jesus. It's not an announcement that if you become a peacemaker, Jesus will be more pleased with you. It's not an announcement of how to secure your spot in the kingdom of God, but it is an announcement of who the kingdom of God is for. It is for the poor, the broken, the marginalized. It is for the people who identify themselves as poor in spirit. It is for the people who are the meekest among us. And before Jesus teaches any sort of morals and ethics, which he's about to do here in chapter five, he has to let this crowd know just who is invited into this kingdom. And he's letting them know that the reality that they have been living in is not the same reality of the kingdom. I know what some of you are doing in your minds right now though. You're going, but shouldn't we, Rory, shouldn't we like, we should try to be these things. The Beatitudes are like good things. We should try to become more meek. We should try to become poor in spirit. We should try to mourn over the things that matter in our lives. Absolutely, those things are good things. You know what's interesting about the Beatitudes though in this context? Every one of them have inherent pain attached to them. Every one of them. Thinking about Jesus's words, to be someone to mourn most literally means to be a weeping one. It's someone who has been rejected or deserted by their friends, their families, their loved ones. It's someone who has been pushed away from all the things that they know. To be a weeping one is to be that person who sits at home at night because you have lost someone so near and dear to you. You've lost a parent, a son, or a daughter. Maybe not even to death, they've just abandoned you. They've left you. To be someone who mourns is to be that person who has, for whatever reason, lost your career, your career has broken down, and you have no idea where to go from here. Blessed are those who mourn assumes that there's pain. Or when Jesus simply says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're like, yeah, we we should hunger and thirst for the things that are right. I love the way that Dallas Willard talks about these kinds of people. These are the people who look and they see things in the world that are wrong, but what they almost always do is recognize that the deepest wrongs lie within themselves, create shame and guilt, or maybe they've even been severely wronged and they're just longing for the great pain of their life to be made right. And what Jesus does is look out at those kinds of people and says the blessing of the kingdom is for you or even to be pure in heart. I think of the perfectionists, among us, those that see all the things that are not going right, and they even recognize in themselves that things are not going right. Listen, all of the Beatitudes have some level of pain attached to them, and here's why that matters. If you've ever found yourself as someone who is mourning, as you ever found yourself as someone who is meek, being pushed to the side, if you've ever found yourself as someone who is, who is hungering and thirsting after righteousness and the deep pain is within yourself, those are the exact moments where all of us wonder, does God actually care about me at all? It's those moments where the very blessing, favor, love, existence of God are in the most question. Think about when Jesus says blessed, are the poor in spirit. Theologians have often translated that to mean that blessed are the spiritual zeros. You're the person in here today who has been dragged to church you don't know how many times and you're still not sure why you're here. The spiritual zeros, the people who have no faith, no belief, and yet what Jesus looks at those people and says is that the kingdom of heaven is actually wide open for you. I think about a friend who told me, A story not long ago about herself that she had grown up in a in an abusive home abusive in every way that you can imagine physically sexually emotionally it was such an abusive home that in order for her to like get out somehow she chose to get married at 15 15 some of you have 15 year olds in this room you can't imagine that she got married at 15 was pregnant by 17 and was divorced by 19 The man that she married, connected her life to, was a drug addict, a drug dealer, an abuser, a cheater. She was in the worst spot that you could imagine. She had no faith. None at all. Not even an inkling hanging around. None. She eventually makes a decision to move her life across over the, overseas to live in Germany she had friends and family who were on a base a military base there so she moves there and as she's there she is like partying it up she's got one daughter who's being taken care of during the day but drinking partying sexual promiscuity whatever you want to say then one day she finds herself in the back seat of a car two women are in the front And the woman in the passenger seat is like an old school Pentecostal. Like old school tell you exactly what they're thinking, Pentecostal. Like old school, could probably be quiet every once in a while, Pentecostal. And they stop to get gas and the woman driving hops out of the car and this old Pentecostal woman in the front seat turns around and looks at my friend. She says, can I tell you something? She's like, yeah, whatever, you can tell me whatever. This woman begins to list off all the places of sin and brokenness and sadness and abuse in this woman's life. Just says, I think God told me to tell you this. Tears proceed. It's just a few days later that my friend finds herself in a church in Germany, a house church, just sitting above a garage and recognizes that she is also in fact a complete spiritual zero. And yet what the kingdom of God did in that moment was open itself up to her in the backseat of a car. And she has been following Jesus for many years now, leading ministries, giving her life to the church. Those are the moments where we see the kingdom of God break in the blessedness of the kingdom break in for those who are poor in spirit. I think about when Jesus says blessed, are the peacemakers, and you're like, man, we should all be peacemakers. Have you ever tried to be a peacemaker? Like, have you ever tried to stand between warring parties and get everyone to get along? If you're a parent and you have multiple kids, the answer is yes. I can remember a few years ago, I was at breakfast with some friends, and we're sitting by the front door, and I noticed that this mom walks in, this single mom walks in with her three kids, She's got two boys and a little girl, and she tries to wrangle them all up, and she tries to get them to sit down at the table. One's in a high chair, and the other two are like coloring, or they're sort of occupied. And I watched the mom do this thing where she sits them down, and you have to go order at the counter. She looks at them, and she takes like three steps. Okay, they're good. A few more steps. Okay, they're good. Gets to the counter, and she keeps looking over her shoulder, making sure that they're good. No lie, the moment that this mom began to order, it is as if these children knew, no one is looking at us right now. The oldest boy has found himself crawling on the floor to the kitchen. He's gonna make breakfast on his own. The little girl sitting in a high chair, she can't go anywhere, but what she can do is scream. She begins to wail. The youngest son, he's like, this is my moment. He attempts to escape from the restaurant entirely. He's at the door trying to make his way out. I'm by the door, so I kind of put my foot in front of it like, oh, no, you can't get it open. This mom is now in the kitchen of the restaurant grabbing one kid, trying to console another kid, trying to get this one kid to believe that he should not, in fact, reenact prison break in real time. She's wrangling all of these children, and she's just trying to get them all to be peaceful for a minute. And yet what we believe about the kingdom of God is that it is for that single mom, even in that exact moment, that the kingdom of God is open to. She's not somehow like kept away from it because of her circumstances, because of the chaos of her life, because of the chaos of the world in which she lives. It is in fact those moments where God is the closest to many of us. Or I think about my dear friend Deborah. When Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. My friend Deborah is a African American woman who grew up in East Texas. She grew up living with her grandmother, and she would only go to church when her grandma would drag her there. But Deborah had had big hopes. She was going to go off to college. She was going to make a lot of money. She was going to do a lot of great things with her life. Deborah turns eighteen. She goes off to school, a local state school in Texas. And she's doing well. Until one night, she goes out on a date and is sexually assaulted on this date. And when I say sexually assaulted, I mean sexually assaulted in the worst way you can imagine. Physically beaten, emotionally distraught, confused in deep pain. And I remember when Deborah told me the story for the first time, the way that she tells it, is as this moment unfolds, she runs away in tears, sobbing. She gets back to her dorm room. Her roommate is not there. It's just her there. And the way that she worded it to me, she said, Rory, before I even got in the shower, I just said, God help. And she said, all I remembered was being a little girl in church with my grandmother. And the one thing I remembered was that you were supposed to pray for those who are your enemies. And so before I even got cleaned up, before I even stepped into the shower, I stopped and prayed that that man would meet Jesus. Blessed are the merciful? the ones who in their deepest moments of pain look into the world and don't extend more judgment but say, I know I've been wronged and wounded and hurt. God, this is yours. It's in that moment that Deborah gave her life to Jesus. It is somehow in the moments where mercy is being ripped out of us as we look wrongs in the face, that the kingdom of God is thrust wide open for us. Friends, can I tell you what this means? This means that the Beatitudes are good news for every single one of us. That no matter what spot you find yourself in today, maybe you are a spiritual zero. Maybe you weren't once, but today you find yourself with no faith. None at all. And what Jesus says to you is you are in fact blessed. Maybe you have been mourning for days and weeks and months over the goodness and well-being of your kids and your family. And Jesus does not say, just keep trying. He looks at you and says, you friends are in fact blessed. Maybe you feel like you are an outcast on the furthest reaches of society and what Jesus does is looks at you and says, you are in fact blessed. The kingdom of heaven is open to you. The kingdom of heaven is open to you right now. With that in mind, would you stand where you are? I think someone who has said this in a clearer, more profound way than I ever could in 30 minutes, he can do it in a few sentences Dallas Willard says these words. He says, this fact of God's care and provision, the Beatitudes is what he's talking about, proves to all that no human condition excludes blessedness, that God may come to any person with his care and deliverance. God does, some, God does sometimes help those who cannot or perhaps just do not help themselves. The religious system of his day left the multitudes out, but Jesus welcomes them all into his kingdom. Anyone could come as well as any other, they still can. That is the gospel of the Beatitudes. And there's no better way to live that out than to walk to the table that Jesus has prepared for us. In fact, it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. And you know what Jesus didn't say? It's given for all of you who've got life figured out. It's given for all of you who have sort of figured things out that your life is in perfect condition. He didn't say this is given for all of you who, who are making all the perfect decisions. He just says this is given for you right now, right where you find yourself. At the same time, he took the cup, and he said this cup is the new covenant. It's a new promise. He's extending a guarantee to you that your blessedness cannot be ripped away from you, that you have been called blessed by the Son of God himself. I want to invite our communion servers to come forward at this time. The way that you're going to receive communion today, you're going to exit to the right of your section. There will be gluten-free cracker at the bottom. Someone will serve it to you. You'll take that cracker, dip it into the juice, and then you'll take it back to your seat. Pray with your friends, pray with your families, But friends, know more than anything that that same blessing that Jesus called out thousands of years ago is being called out over you right now as well. Let me pray over our communion time this morning. God, we are in awe that the kind of God that you are is one who would look at those of us who have failed, who have mourned, who have been pushed to the side, who have who have stepped into the chaos of life to try to make things right, who are hungering and thirsting for things to be good in the world, that you look at us with no prerequisite and just say, you are in fact blessed. And God, it is with thankfulness of that reality that we come to your table this morning because it is the same blessing that is being poured out, that we are now invited to a thing that we do not deserve, that we did not earn, that has been given to us by your grace and mercy alone. So God, would you lay that weight on our heart? Would we feel the truth of that this morning as we come forward to take and eat and to drink? We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come forward to receive communion.